Well, the core of this morning's message is going to hit different ones of us differently, but in another way, it should hit all of us the same. And here's what I mean. Uh, when I say the word father, which is one of the two key words in today's message, uh, almost every one of us thinks of someone different in a, in a different situation. Uh, what for some of us, if you're young, uh, your father may be your favorite person to snuggle up to on the couch and the person in whose arms you feel the warmest and the safest in heart. And then for others of you, your father is someone that you have great memories with, but you don't see as much as you used to and you wish you called him more often and wish you talked to him more often. Uh, others of you probably wish that your dad was still around and still with us. And still others of you look back and have memories that none of us would want to remember, memories that are, that are terrifying. And so when we begin to compare God revealed in his son as father, uh, different emotions come to mind for us. But in another way and in a better way, it ought to hit us the same way. Because no matter what you've had in your earthly father, all of us want the same thing. All of us want to be led by somebody who is strong in authority, but gentle in the way they handle it. All of us want to be led by an authority, fatherly figure who is tender to us. Someone who, who teaches us good and true things like a good father. Uh, someone who loves us, and we have no question about the way that he loves us. Someone whose rules in the house go, who has good rules that he enforces in our house. And when, when I break them, or when brother breaks them, or sister breaks them, we know exactly what's going to happen, and we don't have to wonder what's going to happen. A home that's just and good for us to grow up in. A father who provides for all of our needs and protects us from all harm. We all want the same thing in a father. And the good news I want to give you today is that that Father has, has come to earth to be with us. And so no matter what you have or have had on earth, uh, there's a good Father who calls your name and calls you to come to him. If you're just joining us, we're three sermons in now to our Advent. We started it a week earlier than most people have. And what we're doing is we're looking at the four names that the prophet Isaiah gives to the coming Jesus Christ, who had not yet come, he foretold him, and now has come, and we know him to be Jesus. Uh, Isaiah tells of a light who will shine in the darkness, a dark and dying world, and a life-giving light will shine into it. And he gives us four double names for this Jesus, to tell him what he will be like and what his character is like. We are looking at those four names and asking, who is this God who has come to be with us? Today we're going to read the whole prophecy again, but we will focus on the third name, which is Everlasting Father. Would you read me Isaiah 9? We'll read verses 2 through 7, and then we'll zoom into those words, Everlasting Father. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of his David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Those words are the words of our God, and today we focus on that name, Everlasting Father. Through that name, God's Spirit calls his people to trust themselves to the tender care of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said earlier, Isaiah's whole prophecy here is that in their dark and dying world, a life-giving light would shine. This light would be both a man who is king, a mighty savior who would deliver them, and he would be God on high. He wouldn't just be any counselor, but the wonderful counselor. He wouldn't just be a mighty man, but he would be mighty God. God was going to come to earth, but he was going to be a man also, for unto us a child is born. He was going to be born into the world as a child. And as he did that, he would shine a life-giving light into this dark world. One of the ways he would do that, part of that character that he would shine with, is by being an everlasting father to us. Now, as we ask what that means, of the four names, that might be the most confusing one to you if you've gone to church for a while, because you are probably used to, if you've been going to church a while, hearing about the Christian teaching of the Trinity. Uh, You may have heard that God exists in three persons, right? God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit. And Jesus is the second person in that trinity, right? God the Son. And the divine mystery here is that those three persons are three separate persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. They are separate persons. But they're all three God, and there's, and there's one God. Right? That's the divine mystery there. Now, if you're well-schooled in that and you're used to thinking of the first person of the Trinity as Father and the second person as Son and the third one of the Spirit, you might stop in your tracks here and you might say, now, wait a minute, this one's about the Son. This is about Jesus and he is everlasting Father. What's going on there, right? I thought the Father was the Father. Why is the Son the Father? Well, we have to be careful here because it's very tempting to read the Old Testament with a New Testament dictionary, right? The New Testament lays out that teaching of the Trinity. The Old Testament leaves it much more mysterious. And the people in ancient times and Old Testament times use the word Father rather differently than Trinitarian teaching does. So while the Trinity is true and beautiful, we must for a moment not look at this text through that lens, but instead ask, how did people in Old Testament times use the word father? Well, in the ancient world, uh, most of the leaders that they had were ruthless. Uh, people ruled by fear and by force. And you did what the king said because you were going to meet something terrible if you didn't do what the king said. Most of the kings got to their throne by being ruthless and bloody. And and sometimes in houses, fathers were ruthless. But a leader who was benevolent, a leader who was tender and cared for his people, well, in the Old Testament world, they would think of that kind of person as as a father. We would say like a father figure, right? An authority in our lives that cares for us and, and loves us, who is tender toward us in his strength. Well, any leader in the Old Testament world who led like that was called a father. Uh, 
One example would be the Egyptian officers in the land of Egypt. Almost all of the officers had the word father in their title. And the idea was that they were at least supposed to care for the people under them. Of course, they rarely lived up to that standard and were often very ruthless, but their name, at least, was that they were a father. They were a good, tender, and kind leader. In these large houses, in a system that today we would call patriarchy, where many generations live together under one roof and in one encampment in a series of tents together, and the oldest father, the oldest ancestor of them all would be the father. We would call him the patriarch, right? And he would be there with his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and their spouses and any servants that might be in the house. There might be two or three hundred people in this house, and it is led by one man that everyone in the house would call the father of the house. And he was expected to lead in a way that cared for them, that was tender toward them. It wasn't rough and wasn't harsh, but he was supposed to act like what we would expect a father to act like. One really good example of this idea and the fact that they considered caring leaders as father figures in that day Uh, was an emperor who would come a generation or two after these words were written. Isaiah will actually predict him. Uh, His name would be Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus would be the emperor of Persia in the future. Uh, What Isaiah predicts will happen here is that Babylon will rise up, they will conquer Israel, they will treat Israel cruelly when they do this, and they will deport all the people of Israel and force them to live in Babylon under cruel conditions. Well, what Isaiah predicts will happen is that next a man named Cyrus will rise up. And indeed he did. Cyrus rose up in the Persian Empire and the Persian Empire conquered Babylon. And Isaiah predicts that Cyrus will be the one who allows the Jewish people to go home to their homeland. And he did. And he didn't do it because he was forced to. He did it as a gesture of goodwill. He saw their suffering. He saw that their homeland lay there empty with only a few foreigners in it. And he said, why shouldn't you people be allowed to go to your home? Well, that's a little window into Cyrus as a historical figure. He actually had a reputation for being an unusually kind and benevolent emperor. Uh, He was so good to his people that after he would come through and conquer a land, he would take such good care of it that in five or ten years it would be in far better shape than it was under the previous leaders. He'd give them roads, he'd give them the water they need, all the administration, because he cared about the people that he led. He developed such a good reputation for being kind to the people that he led and conquered, people he didn't have to be kind to, that neighboring lands would ask him to come and conquer them because they knew that they would be better off under his rule. He would go up to places and the people would just bow down to him immediately because they were eager for him to come in and conquer them. And by all of this goodness and kindness toward the people that he ruled, He earned the name in the ancient world throughout the Persian Empire as the Father. They didn't call him the emperor all the time. They would call him the Father. And in the nation of Iran today, the Iranian people still look back in history and they still call him the Father because of his benevolent rule over that kingdom. That's a little bit of what these people thought when they had said or heard the word Father. A leader who ruled with unquestioned authority but was kind, caring, and tender to the people that he led. So that's one part of the idea here. Whoever this king is who comes, and we know him to be Jesus, he will be a ruler. He will have power, but he will exercise it in kindness and tenderness toward his people. Now, 
one of the effects of a father like that in a house is that it brings stability to the house, right? A father who has good rules that are just, and he enforces those rules, and he disciplines those who don't follow those rules, and he provides for everyone's needs, and he protects everyone in the home with good locks and protection from those on the outside that might want to come in and hurt them. That brings stability into a house. Children live with security, and the mother lives with security. But that only happens if the father sticks around, right? Some of you could tell me that doesn't work if dad walks out when you're eight years old, right? Father's got to stick around. And that's really the tragic reality of human leadership and why human leadership doesn't cut it. Every good leader has an end to his time, right? Even the best of pastors eventually resigns or retires or meets an early death. Uh, The best of presidents' term comes to an end, and if he gets another one, it comes to an end, and that's it. The greatest kings, the kindest kings in history, their time always comes to an end. And so it would not really be fulfilling if this great king would come and rule for a generation and then just be gone. Be right back where we were. Maybe worse. And that's what Isaiah is getting at with the other word in the name. Not just a father, but an everlasting father. This king would come and he would rule in kindness forever. He would bring stability to his people forever. So we put these two together. He is a unquestioned ruler but is kind and tender toward his people. That's father. And then he brings that stability and goodness forever. The increase of his government there will be no end And then we have an understanding of what it means when Isaiah calls him everlasting father. A figure who will lead us and be kind to us forever. So, if last week's main point from the word mighty God was that only Jesus can save you like God can. And the week before that was that only Jesus has good ways that are good for us forever. Today, what we see in this name, Everlasting Father, is that only Jesus will care for you forever. Only Jesus is that good, everlasting Father and King forever. So that's the point today. Only Jesus can care for you forever. He is that tender and caring authority figure, and he will be that way forever. Here's what we're going to do the rest of this morning, then. If that's the point, here's how we'll unpack it. Uh, First, I want to show you how that is true through and through in the Scriptures, Uh, The scriptures have a profound message, and and I don't want to open them for you. And then once we've done that, we want to ask the question, okay, what does that mean for my life today? How's my life different now that God has come to earth as everlasting Father, and he is with me now? For the people of God, what does that mean for us? Let's do the first one first. How, How do the whole of the scriptures show this to be true? One way you could outline the story of the Bible is to say that the Old Testament teaches us much about who God is. We learn about his character, his holiness, so much about him. And then the New Testament shows us that Jesus is that God of the Old Testament. So we learn what he's like in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, Jesus reveals himself to be that very God. We find that pattern true here as well. Throughout the whole Bible, God reveals himself as a father to his people, lovingly caring for and teaching his people. And then the New Testament shows us that Jesus is that very God, loving and caring toward his people forever. 
So this is shown through and through in the Bible. The prophet Hosea, for instance, speaks of God's people, and it says, the Lord speaking, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So he's using father-son language to talk about his people, as if to say, I relate to these people like a father relates to a son. Particularly, he has for us the compassion that a father has for children. The Psalms say, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. So, if you have children, if you've seen parents work with children, you know this is kind of how it works. When the child becomes sick or skins their knee or becomes hurt, there is something in the parent that just activates, right? All of a sudden you love that child a little more and you're rushing to their side and brushing off their knee. You're caring for them in the bed and making sure the thermometer is just right, right? And when things get very bad, this gets activated even more. We become compassionate. If the ch- one of the children, you can have six children and if one of them has something very difficult like leukemia or something just so hard, oh, how that will activate that compassion you have for that child. You might even begin to, in the worst case, care less for the other five because you're looking out so much for that one hurting, suffering, and sick child. This is how parents work. But not every leader works that way, right? Uh, We might forgive the high school football coach for loving his star running back much more than he loves his fourth string running back and giving that star running back much more attention and praise and honor than he gives to that fourth string running back. Because the star running back is winning his games. And the kind of coach that cares also for the lower players, well, that's a father figure coach. That's the kind of coach we would think of as a father in our lives. But parents, no, I mean, I mean you know it if you felt it. Your child starts suffering and your compassion switch just turns on, your heart breaks for that child. That's the way that God relates to his people. The most hurting among us, the most suffering among us, the weakest among us, the ones who can contribute the least into his kingdom, his heart turns for them. He says, oh, my child. And he's like that mom that's making sure the thermometer is just right in your mouth and making sure you got all the blankets that you need. He stoops down and he cares for us. He shows himself to be a fatherly authority in our lives. One way that's revealed is in the way he teaches and disciplines his people. A good father disciplines his children. And the Proverbs say, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father in the son whom he delights. And a father that loves his children will discipline and teach those children. The Proverbs say the father that spares the rod hates his son, right? He's not sending him the right direction. A loving father disciplines children. And our heavenly father treats us with the same tender care. He guides us. He disciplines us. He corrects us as a father does to his children. He shows himself to be this perhaps most of all to those who are in the hardest of situations. Psalm 68 says, A father of the fatherless and a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So there he is in the throne room of heaven, 
showing himself to be father to those who don't have fathers here on earth, showing himself to be a caretaker for those who don't have husbands here on this earth. And this is so true of his character that at one point, one of the psalmists laments, for my father and my mother have forsaken me. Can you imagine disowned by his father and mother? My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Because that's what the Lord does. He takes in those who have nothing here in this world, those who need him. Israel's law revealed his care for the poor. There are so many fail-safes put in to protect them. And how seriously the Lord would say something like, you shall not mislead a blind man on the road. I am the Lord, right? He cared for those in his kingdom who were in need. The offering system had special offerings that the poor could bring because they couldn't afford to bring as much as the rich. For atonement, you would bring two lambs. But then it says, well, if you can't afford two lambs, you can just bring one lamb. But if you can't afford that, you can just bring two pigeons, which, you know, pigeons are give or take, you know, a nickel each, who even cares? Like whatever you can bring, you can bring. He takes the time to write into the law, care for those who are in need. He reveals himself to be a tender father to his people. What he requires in return is that his people, his children, honor him like a child does to a father. So we look to him with the deepest of reverence and we say, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We regard his name as holy and we revere him. Then what he does is he builds relationships that mirror that into the world. He's not just father of us and we're his children, but then in the real world, there are real fathers and real children here that we can see and touch and watch them interact And so he gives those fathers and those children the same instruction, right? Fathers, be tender toward your children. Do not exasperate them. Don't misuse your authority and exhaust them. No, be tender to your children. And to children, one of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and your mother, right? So we're mirroring that relationship as fathers and children here, as parents and children here. He builds that into the husband and wife relationship. He calls the husband to lead the home. He is not shy about the fact that men are physically stronger than women, and we must deal with that. And so he tells husbands, honor your wife as the weaker vessel and live with her in an understanding way. Basically, be tender toward her and be considerate toward her, right? Why does he say that to husbands? Well, because the Lord knows our frame and he remembers that we are just dust, right? He's tender toward us in our weakness. And so he tells husbands, use your physical strength for her good and be tender toward her. So all these relationships we have like this, they mirror that relationship God has with us where he he cares for us tenderly and lovingly. And we look to him and we honor him. That's the God of the Bible, and that is what he is like. Now, the New Testament shows us that this Jesus who has come into the world, he's not just God, he's, he's that God of the Old Testament. He's the same Yahweh of the Old Testament, the same Lord of the Old Testament. So it makes sense then that when John the Baptist comes and prepares the way for the Lord— One of the things that John the Baptist will do, it says, is turn the hearts of the fathers toward their children and turn the hearts of the children toward their father. That earthly mirrored relationship is going to be repaired 
And then the way will be ready for the Lord himself to come, for everlasting father to come, now that the earthly fathers and the earthly children have their hearts turned back toward each other. He does what he does in those early chapters of Luke with such tenderness to those who are lowly and weak in that society. If you had walked those streets that day, you would have seen a woman named Elizabeth who socially was one of the lowest people walking around. Sure, her husband was a priest, but she had reached old age and the Lord had given her no children and people looked upon her with scorn because of this. And then late in time, the Lord gives to her a son who is John the Baptist, the great prophet. And she says, thus the Lord has done to me when he has taken away my reproach. The Lord stooped to her and was tender toward her and cared for her. Even in the coming of Jesus, the Lord is showing how caring he is. Another person you probably wouldn't have noticed on the streets that day would be a young girl named Mary because she was just a young girl like everybody else, right? And not significant in the world. But the angel of the Lord would appear to her and say, Greetings, O highly favored one. The Lord is with you. And you will bear a child, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will save his people from their sins. He takes this lowly girl and lifts her up high, and she says, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. That's what the Lord does. He's tender toward those who are lowly, and he lifts them up high. He reveals himself to be that even as Jesus comes. And then as it's beginning to come about, one of the prophets refers to this Jesus coming, and he says, uh, whereby the tender mercy of God will visit us on high. Uh, That baby, that Jesus, he is the tender mercy of God toward his people, toward his children, revealed in a baby. So that's who God is, and that's who Jesus is revealing himself to be as he comes. It's really no surprise then that he comes of age, he begins his ministry, and he immediately goes after those who are hurting in the kingdom and heals them. The first thing he says in Luke is the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, right? That fatherly heart toward those suffering in his kingdom, it is activated. That switch is flipped on like when a child you love falls off their bike and skins their knee and he goes after them and he says, be healed, right? Get up and walk, go and sin no more. And he goes after all of those who are in need to care for them. He goes to the synagogue and he teaches like a good father does, right? A good father teaches his kids how to get along in the world. And there he goes, everlasting father, standing there in the temple, teaching and amazing everybody. And they say, this one teaches with authority, not like our scribes and our Pharisees. And so many times he sees people suffering and he has compassion or pity on them. He sees a crowd and he says, I've got compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, he has another crowd that just gathers around him for three days. He's not telling them to stay around. He's not telling them they can't leave, but they're just coming and they won't leave. And he says, I have compassion on these people. They've been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. That's why he multiplies the loaves and the fishes for them. He has compassion for them. Uh, A blind man asks to be healed. And he doesn't just heal him. It says he looked at the man and he had pity on him. He felt compassion and pity for him. and And then he healed him. Even the rich young ruler who was hardened against him and was not going to come and follow Jesus, and Jesus could see in his heart, says he looked at him and he loved him, right? Even those who wouldn't come to him. 
And maybe this is shown most pointedly in the story of the woman who's caught in adultery. Uh, The law that day called for the stoning of those who were caught in in adultery. Uh, This woman was, I mean, it's not very often somebody gets caught. She got caught. That's embarrassing. And they they drag her out and and they're ready to stone her. And they ask Jesus, for what, what should we do? What do you think? Teach us. And he says, well, let the one without sin throw the first stone. And of course, they all have to stand there, right? Because they're all sinners. And then the old walk away first because they're wiser. It doesn't take them as long to figure out that they're sinners. And then last, the young walk away because they realize they're sinners too. And she's left all alone just with Jesus. Now, part of the message of that story is that the Pharisees were sinners. They were frauds. They had no authority to be doing what they were doing. And we make much out of that. But there's something more important there as well. He doesn't just say, you guys can't stone her because you're full of sin. He says, let the one among you who is without sin throw the first stone. And there was actually somebody among them who was without sin. It was him. It was Jesus. So he's got the authority to pick up the first stone and peg her with it. And he he doesn't do it. And And then they're all gone. And he says, where are all your accusers? And she says, they're all gone. And And then the one who is without sin, the one who could throw the first stone, says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the character of everlasting Father who came to rule us with kindness and with tenderness. That's what he is like. That's how he reveals himself to be that Old Testament God coming down to earth. He will show us that he is just like that when he returns as well. We have pictures of that in Revelation when he comes. Uh, If you think of someone wiping away the tears from someone else's eye, you probably think of a father or a husband, right, wiping away somebody's tears. I wonder who has wiped away the most tears from your eyes. Maybe it's your father in your life. Uh, Well, when Jesus returns, it says he is going to wipe away all of our tears. A compassionate and fatherly thing for him to do, to show himself to be that loving and caring authority. He will wipe every tear away from us. And then he goes to his throne and he sits on his throne, finally, visibly, before the whole world. He is free to do whatever he pleases. He could bellow, all of you people come and destroy yourselves for me, for I am great in power. He could do this if he wanted to. And what he chooses to do is he sits on his throne and he says, let all who are thirsty come and drink living water without price. Your character is revealed by the way you treat people that you don't have to treat well. He sits on his throne in power and can do whatever he wants. He says, everybody come drink water because that's the kind of God, that's the kind of king that he is. On that day, his teaching, like a good father, will flow forth from Zion. It says, out of Zion will flow forth the law, right? Like a river just coming down, and we will drink all of his teaching and all of his good ways that we want to. And maybe the place where this is most clear is in Revelation 21. He says, this is Jesus talking, he says, the one who conquers, that is the one who sticks with Jesus all the way to the end, he will have this heritage, I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's not the Father saying that. That's the the Son. That's Jesus saying that, right? So though the Trinity is still true and we still love it, we hold on to it, in many ways Jesus reveals himself to be that kind of leader for us, that Father figure, that loving, tender, unquestionable authority 
that brings to your heart a sense of stability, a sense of safety, a sense of warmth. That's our God. And we celebrate this Advent that he came to earth as Jesus Christ. So there's how the Bible reveals Jesus to be that God, that everlasting Father. Now we ask, what what does that mean for your life? Uh, If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you you maybe have shown that through baptism, you show things like the Lord's Supper, you're walking in holiness, you love Jesus, you trust Jesus, what does it mean that he is that kind of king for you? Well, really plainly, it means that Jesus is caring for you like a father cares for a child. And anytime you see a father loving a child or caring for a child, you're seeing a picture of what Jesus is doing for you from his throne at all times. That's why we have verses like all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose because he's actively doing things to make that happen. He's caring for us in a tender and loving and authoritative way. He does this with unquestionable authority like the most revered of fathers. He is in his throne in heaven and he does as he pleases. Who among us could look at him and say, why have you done this? Right? Who among us could ever question him, right? Unquestioned authority. And yet he exercises that authority with the deepest of tenderness so that all of his people rejoice for we are not crushed. We are not treated with harshness, but we are treated with love by the most powerful one in the universe. He orchestrates all things to provide for all of our needs. He says his Father in heaven does the same thing, right? Look at the birds. He cares for them. He says he cares for all of our needs and provides for us like a good father. He protects us from harm so that we can say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And then those signs of authority, the rod and the staff, he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me and they protect me. We call it good news that he is in charge because he's good to us. He is teaching us every moment like a good father is from his word, through his spirit in our hearts, through the teaching and preaching of the word, through the lessons we learn in life, even disciplining his children because he loves us. Now, in as much as you're in touch with that and trust that that is true, that ought to bring some emotions in your heart. Right? You, ought, you ought to feel that. That's, that's the truth we should feel. Uh, what should that feel like, you might ask? Well, the best two things I can think of on this earth that would show us what, what it ought to feel like to be in the care of everlasting Father of Jesus would be a good handshake and a good hug. Uh, probably sometime in the last year, you've shook somebody's hand and thought, mm, that's a good one. That guy's good. Right? A good handshake, it's it's not weak, right? Nobody gives you the dead fish, right? You don't want that, all right? It's strong. A good handshake is strong. But it's also not like Dr. Bone Crusher or anything. You don't want that, right? No, it's strong, but, it, but it's also tender. And there's just something about clasping your hands together like that with a good handshake that it just feels securing, right? I could trust this person. This person's a good, they exercise their strength that they have with tenderness, That feeling in your heart, that is something of what it ought to feel like to be in the hands of this Jesus who exercises his authority with that much care and that much tenderness. Or similarly, and I'm sorry, those of you that aren't huggers and don't like hugs, we're just going to talk about hugging anyway. Um, Those of you that like a good hug, um, you, you don't want the person to like not even put their arms around you 
or, I mean, you know what that's like, right? They don't even bother to lift up their arms. Or maybe they do, but they're just, you know, they're not really going to, like, hug you. And there may be a number of good reasons for them doing that. They may be nervous, or they may not quite know you yet. Or there's all kinds of good reasons they might do that. But the message you might hear is, I don't think this person really wants to hug me, right? This feels a little half-hearted. Uh, but a good hug has a sense of strength to it, right? You sense that you're in their strength. But also, they're not, they're not popping you like a grape either, right? There's no, that's not going to happen, right? They're not squeezing you too much and hurting you. But there is a sense of strong tenderness in a good hug. And sometimes, you know, my kids will be snuggling on the couch and I'll be holding them tight and I'll ask, like, how, how does this feel to you? How do you feel right now? And they might say, your kids might say the same thing. I feel safe, right? I feel, feel happy and warm and safe. Um, that is what it feels like to be in the, in the care of this everlasting father figure we have in Jesus Christ. Like a good, strong, tender hug from on high. Another thing he is doing is he is disciplining his children. Uh, I read earlier about God in heaven, right? Uh, my son, despise not the Lord's discipline. From Proverbs 3, you heard that. Uh, Interestingly, Hebrews quotes that chapter, quotes those, that Proverbs, and it quotes it about Jesus. It says, do not despise the Lord's discipline. When the New Testament says Lord, it means Jesus, the Lord. Uh, don't despise his discipline or be weary of his reproof. He's treating you as, as a son does. Uh, for the Lord disciplines every son he receives and every son he loves he chastises. Right? This is what he does for the children that he loves. If he were not doing that, we would be illegitimate children and not his sons. Uh, so that means then that part of how he is orchestrating things and part of how he is arranging his word and arranging the preaching of the word and the Bible studies you're going to is to, in the right times, with all the tenderness of the world, correct us when we go astray. Every child needs that from their father, and we need that from him as well. What it says is, don't despise that. Don't be weary of that. It says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like they did in the wilderness. Now, receive his correction. Receive his teaching. That's what loving children do to fathers. It's painful in the moment when he corrects us. Oh, but when he guides us on the right path, the fruit of righteousness it reveals is so good. And so what we must not do then is we must not despise it. We must receive his discipline when he gives it. Probably the most pointed thing that this truth means for us is in those words in Hebrews, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. If he is calling you to, to him, do you see that he's calling you to trust the one who is good, the, the one who will treat you with all tenderness in his authority forever. So if he is calling you to him, friend, I urge you, go to him. If you wonder, is he calling me to him? Yes, he is calling you to him. Go to him and trust him. This Jesus is so tender toward his people and so loving toward his people that he's willing to come and suffer with us on earth for a full life and then offer himself as a sacrifice to pay for our sins and then rise from the dead to guarantee us eternal life and is even now working for the good of his people. And he says all of that that death paying for your sins, that resurrection guaranteeing your eternal life, that relationship with a loving father figure. He says all of that can be yours. 
And what he calls you to do is, is trust him and receive that. And so I call you with all of your heart, trust that Jesus and receive what he has done for you. Now, those of you that have trusted him a while, or two of you today just made that proclamation today publicly, uh, my call to you is to trust him fully and completely. Uh, One of the big problems in the suburbs is that uh, there are a whole lot of people who trust Jesus with eternity, but don't trust him with life today. And that gets revealed in two big problems that happen in the suburbs, immorality and worry, which we are plagued with in these parts. Uh, One will say, well, yes, I trust him with salvation, but I'm worried about this thing today and this thing tomorrow and this thing the day after that. We trust him with salvation, but we don't trust him with whatever problem it is that's making us worry. And I call you, trust him fully. If you can trust him with your life, you can trust him with your life. Others of us trust in him for forgiveness, but we don't trust that his ways really are good for our lives. And so when it comes to difficult things, or difficult decisions where we must do the right thing, we'll say, I trust you with eternity, Jesus, but I don't trust you with this decision, right? I, I think that my way is a little better, and so I'm going to go my way. That trust in self is the root of so much immorality in an affluent place like this. And so if that's you, if the Spirit convicts you as I say that, my call to you is don't just trust him with tomorrow, trust him with today. He will exercise his authority in your life with tender, good care. And all of his ways are good for you. So trust him with your worry and trust him with your morals. Trust him with your life. The scriptures say even... Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. We're seeing here that he's everlasting father. He cares for you. Cast all of your cares upon him. What else must we do? Well, if he is everlasting father, then we, his children, must, we must honor him. Right? Uh, this is why Micah says, if a son honors a father and if I am your father, then where is my honor? He confronts his people, Right? And so he calls us to revere his name as we sing reverential songs like let all mortal flesh keep silence. As we walk about our lives, not forgetting his presence in our lives, but living with honor of him. Oh, he calls us to honor him. He calls us also and finally to to mirror that type of loving authority and honor in our authority relationships. I hinted at this earlier, but if you're in those kind of relationships, if you have a father or a mother or a child or a husband or a wife or a boss or an employee, he calls us to exercise that kind of authority and that kind of honor. So, Father, here's the words from the New Testament. Uh, Fathers, love your children, don't be harsh with them, and don't exasperate them. No, you have an example in your everlasting father of what fatherhood looks like and treat your children with that kind of fatherhood. Let them say when they hear of God as father, I know what that looks like because of my dad. In the same way, children, honor your parents. The Lord cares about this enough that he put it in the Ten Commandments, right? That holds society together when children honor their parents. When you do that, you are honoring the fact that it's the Lord who made them your parents. And it's the Lord who designed fatherhood and designed childhood and made all this to work this way. Children, honor your parents. 
For husbands and wives, this means the same thing. Right? Fathers, you heard me quote earlier the words from 1 Peter, which I think every husband ought to memorize, right? Uh, husbands, right? love your wives. Don't be harsh with them, it says elsewhere. Uh, but live with your wives in an understanding way, in a way that honors her as the weaker vessel. Right? If you've got a delicate glass, like a crystal glass from Tiffany's in your cupboard, uh, because it's more breakable, you're going to honor it more and hold it higher, right? And be more careful with it. And husbands, that is what our Father in heaven does to us. That is what our God does to us. He remembers. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're just dust. Husbands, do you live with your wives in a way that is tender, in a way that is understanding, in a way that lifts her up, in a way that honors her? Wives, do you honor your husband? Right? Do you give him the respect that a husband deserves in a home? Oh, see how that relationship mirrors how good our God is to us. Do you have employees at work? Are you the boss where you work? Uh, hear those words that if, if the Bible can write to masters and tell them for their slaves to be good to them and not harsh with them and not threaten them and not abuse their authority, then surely you, with voluntary employees who can quit any time, must treat your employees tenderly and not harshly and care for them and not threaten them and not exasperate them. And employees, do you look to your boss? Do you respect their authority? Do you try to get the job done that they want you to get done and treat them with honor and respect? When we do that in this world, we are mirroring the glory of our Father who loves his children and the children who love his Father, that good, benevolent authority who cares for us and loves us. So church, let's live that out in our lives. Let's trust our God with all of our lives. Uh, let's give to him all of our worries and all of those ways that we don't want to follow. Let's follow in his ways anyhow. Let's love each other as he has loved us. And let's show this world what it looks like to shine as a light in the darkness as he has shown into us. Let's pray.